Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is John Prisco. He's the CEO of Safe Quantum Incorporated. We're going to talk about cybersecurity and quantum technology. So, John, thanks for coming. Thank you. Yeah, tell me a bit about your uh, your background and then what led to your CEOing this this company. Well, I ran a cybersecurity company for 11 years and really had some wonderful experiences tracking down major hacks that that were rather famous and required special types of cybersecurity software to detect them. Did you uh, unravel Stuxnet? Did you figure that one out? We didn't figure that one out, but we figured out the China hack of the New York Times. That was our our claim to fame. (laughs) <laughs> in, in any event, after doing that for 11 years, I had an opportunity to be the, the first CEO of Quantum Exchange, and I was the CEO for three years while they, they got their business started. And then I formed Safe Quantum in order to do some consulting work worldwide. And it's been fascinating. Even in the few years that I've been involved with this technology, there has been a lot of progress. There's a lot more required in order to get to where I think we're headed. But it's really a worldwide effort, and it's quite collaborative, which is very pleasant to see. Um, Before we talk about your current work in uh, quantum-type security, can you... Would it be okay if you talk about the uh, the New York Times hack by China and how you found it? Just a few juicy like tidbits. Well, you know, we had a software product that took a lot of data about the operations of a computer and it built models based on the way things worked normally. And when there was any sort of a departure from that normal way of working, we would study that quite carefully and determine what was going on. And, you know, there are telltale signs from various groups that are hacking, and you've seen it so many times that eventually can spot the uh, the nation state that's involved with it. And that, that's really what we were able to do. 
So it was it was very rewarding, and I don't think any other product at the time could have caught it. Oh, so just like individual hackers, I guess nation states that guide hackers also have their own signature. They really do. Yeah, and then you can you can trace it back uh, if you have enough information. Very cool. Okay. So about your your current company is is the goal to make uh, what unbreakable encryption? Well, you know, I'm I'm studying three primary areas. First is quantum key distribution, uh, which is what we did at Quantum Exchange. But I've been involved with Toshiba and doing consulting for them, and generally have deployed this type of hardware from all the major manufacturers in the world over the last six years. So QKD, number one, being aware of how PQC, post-quantum cryptography, uh, is progressing and the standards that are being established and will soon be announced by NIST. And then probably more recently, over the last year, I've been uh, involved with quantum networks and the idea of entanglement swapping as a way to build a repeater. That is certainly a very interesting and uh, emerging area. Well, for the layperson, can you uh, recount these various technologies and we'll, we'll go in depth on them a little bit? Sure. We'll start with QKD. So QKD is a hardware approach to providing unbreakable security, as opposed to a software approach, which post-quantum cryptography is. So the major difference between quantum key distribution and, for example, you know, public key security is that with public key security, the way in which you secure your transmission is by using a key that is so big that it's really hard to factor it into its two prime numbers. But quantum computers can do that quite fast. Not quite yet, but when quantum computers reach around 4,000 qubits, they'll be able to break all of the encryption that we're currently using in the public domain. So QKD is different in that it, it's not using a large number that's the product of prime numbers, and it doesn't have to factor those numbers to be able to decrypt information. It's using keys, but the keys are made of photons. So just think of a, a laser that could emit a single photon at a time, and that photon could be encoded with, say, for example, polarization. So I could have a vertically polarized photon that might represent a one and a horizontally polarized photon that might represent a zero. So all QKD hardware has what's called a quantum random number generator in it. So, you know, if you start with a very, very random number, and in fact, quantum random numbers are the highest entropy random numbers that have ever been created, you now have a key that's completely random. And, you know, the key can be 256,000 photons long. So, what a hacker would have to do is somehow intercept those photons without losing any of them and would also have to clone uh, the photons. And uh, part of the, the theory in quantum optics is that photons cannot be cloned. And that is true. They cannot. So if you were to tap an optical fiber and try to steal the key made up of photons, the system would instantly note that it was missing photons, 
And the key would never work again because it had been disrupted by the eavesdropper. So this is a hardware approach to unbreakable encryption. What about the uh, polarization scheme? Is there an algorithm? There must be some algorithm to do it. Well, Could that be discovered? Not really, because it's all based on the quantum random number generator. So no, it would be like me flipping a coin 50,000 times in a row and you guessing it right every time. So it's just not possible. How long does it take to generate a random number well, of that? There, there's, uh, a, yep, there's a relationship between the distance and the speed with which keys can be delivered. So the further the distance, the uh, slower the keys are generated. However, you know they're generated usually at a megabit per second or more, depending upon the distance. And you design your system so that you're going to get you know, at least in the kilobits per second. So it's not very difficult to generate thousands of keys over a very short period of time and then use those keys, maybe use them once and discard them and then create more keys as you need them. What about another method of attack whereby you deliberately introduce errors into the system and the system goes, uh-oh, someone's trying to hack and then there's another key, another error, another key, another key, and kind of you know, deny the ability of the system to function by doing this? Well, first of all, if someone does try to intercept the key, the bit error rate, which is calculated on all these systems, will will skyrocket, and the key that's being created would simply be discarded. So you wouldn't use that key. If you're thinking about denial of service attacks, where somebody just keeps hammering the link with a quantum channel, somebody certainly could do that for a while. But generally speaking, you use fiber optic root diversity so that if one of your roots is attacked in that manner, a second or third or fourth root could be used, and those roots would be secured and not apparent to the hacker. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. Hmm, okay. So you think the system's robust enough that uh, these two methods wouldn't work? I do. And it wouldn't slow the system down either. Right, I do. And and there are a lot of other approaches. Don't forget, the, the QKD protocol was developed in 1984 by Bennett and Brassard, and that's why it's called BB84. So a lot of these techniques you know, laser blinding techniques and decoy state techniques. These are all, you know, sort of highly technical approaches, but many of these techniques have been uh, discovered and have been remediated over the years. Since 1984, there's a, you know, a lot of chance for somebody to try to break it, but I think we've, we're now at a stage where it, it is viewed as being uh, perfectly secret. So I can go on to the 
post-quantum cryptography, if, if you would like to go there next. Yeah, I just have a couple more questions. Um, sure. Well, you know, uh, you know, Microsoft computers are hacked all the time because they're in use so much, and Apple, not so much, now more so. Do you think that maybe that uh, if this does come into use frequently all over the place, then it'll be a much bigger attack surface? And then people will say, oh, now it's worth it to attack, try to well, undo well, I, I don't think so, because your example is a good one. Um, you know, Microsoft certainly had the lion's share of the market and, and Apple didn't. So, you know, it's like the old Billy the actor Sutton when he was asked why he robbed banks. And his answer was because that's where the money is. Well, you know, people hacked Microsoft because there were so many computers to deal with that was certainly a richer target. I think the same thing is true now with QKD and PQC, and this will help me introduce PQC to you. But post-quantum cryptographic algorithms do not require hardware. They are algorithmic or mathematical in nature, as is everything we use today. But they will primarily secure e-commerce, which is the lion's share of the market. And QKD will be deployed in important situations like data being transported to the cloud. Another important use case will be securing 5G networks and 6G networks for the telecommunications companies. And there's quite a bit of use right now in the financial services community because they've seemed to invest in quantum rock stars like, uh, for example, Marco Pistoia at J.P. Morgan Chase, who came out of IBM with some hundred patents in the area. So, you know, I think you'll find that the largest attack surface will be for post-quantum cryptographic algorithms. And I think the nature of a quantum key distribution network is so secure that it would be extremely difficult and you would need quantum scientists to try to break that system. Obviously, there are quantum scientists out there, but these systems have uh, stood the test of time and I think they'll continue to produce very, very secure systems. So when do you need a hardware solution versus a software solution? Can you contrast the two again? Yes. Yeah, so there is one use case that does require quantum key distribution, and it's in a very important area. It's in the area of securing critical infrastructure like the power grid. And the reason for that is that the power grid security uses something called a time-sensitive network. And post-quantum cryptographic solutions frequently are large. You know, they, they can be 500 megabytes of, of software that has to run. And in the case of a you know, Department of Energy uh, installation or a power utility, you would really need to use the faster quantum key distribution network in order to satisfy the time-sensitive nature of their SCADA systems. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. If I'm sending data in a trillions of packets, is each packet separately encrypted with a different randomly generated number or is the whole data set packaged or how does it work efficiently? Well, it can be broken up, but it could also be sent in one stream because what you do is you create a key and that key encrypts the entire stream and then you decrypt it at the other end with that key or you could break it up. There are techniques where you can break a transmission up into five subsets 
and a mathematical algorithm that would enable you to require at least all five of those be detected by a, an eavesdropper, but you might be able to reassemble it if you only detected three of those subsets. But in general, it's up to you as to how you separate your data and how you encrypt it and decrypt it. Yeah, how is the random number generated? Can we talk about that for a minute or two? It's interesting. Sure. You know, in the old days, they used to have random numbers generated by looking at people's mouse movements on their computer. And that turned out to have a, a not-so-random nature. It was a pseudo-random number. Quantum random numbers are generated, let me put this in the most basic terms, uh, basically a laser that is emitting single photons with a beam splitter in front of the beam. So, and then the beam will either go straight through the beam splitter or it'll be reflected at a 90 degree angle to the right or left, depending upon how the beam splitter is configured. The photons coming out of both sides of that beam splitter are detected. And there's just no way to know whether a photon is going to go straight through or be reflected. It's, it's taking advantage of the particle nature of light, which of course has a wave nature as well. But in this case, when you're down to single photons, you get the quantum effect and the particle nature carries the day and you just can't predict. Again, it's like me asking you to look at my coin that I flipped 50,000 times and guess every time whether it's head or tail. In this case, you know, did the photon go straight through the beam splitter or did it get deflected to the right? So that, that's how QRNGs work that are true quantum random number generators. So I guess it's, it's using some of the uncertainty principle. So it's literally, it's unknowable. Is that right? Well, that's right. But, you know, the uncertainty principle is more about something that we could talk about with quantum networks. And that is the fact that you cannot observe a quantum process without the observation actually changing the result. So you're right. In this case, if you try to detect the photon's direction, you'd screw up the whole process and, and have to start over. But, you know, the idea of making a quantum repeater, now that's something we need to have the quantum internet or any kind of quantum network. And that depends very much on, on having an ingenious way to get around the uncertainty principle. And that, that ingenious way is called entanglement swapping. Oh, can you tell me about that? Sure. So what we were talking about with QKD was single photons, and they were not entangled. What we're talking about with the quantum internet and quantum repeaters is the necessity to have entangled photons. And that means that if you produce a pair of entangled photons, they are in the same quantum state no matter how far apart they are. And if you change the quantum state of one, the, the twin changes its quantum state to the change that you made. It's something that Einstein called spooky action at a distance. And it is quite unusual. And what, what companies are doing now is they're coming up with quantum memories. And in the quantum memory, they're transferring the entanglement or swapping it 
with another photon that can go down the fiber a longer distance. And that's how you can make a quantum repeater. And you'll need a quantum repeater to have a quantum internet because, you know, most single photon quantum systems are attenuated by the fiber after, well, in some cases, 30 kilometers, in other cases, 800 kilometers, depending upon the type of QKD system you're using. Uh, but definitely not enough to go coast to coast in the United States. But there's some heroic systems out there, like one in the UK that was recently announced by British Telecom and Toshiba, where they're building a uh, secure fiber optic network with QKD, and they're doing that throughout London. And London is of, of a size that it can be done with a single hop with a Toshiba quantum key distribution system that was announced uh, a month or so ago. The I don't quantum... know if I have this, if I have this okay. right, but let's say I'm sending data from A through B to C. So am I entangling two elements in A? Once they get to B, then I'm entangling A to B, and then it goes to C. And the, Is that what happens to repeat this, or how does it work? Well, it, it can work several ways. Like you can go from A to B to C with quantum key distribution, QKD. But what you have to do in that case is you have to have a, a detecting terminal at B and a transmitting terminal at B so that the signal basically gets repeated and sent from A to C. But that B node is problematic and we call it a trusted node and it's not very trusted because you have to actually decrypt your information and now you have a plain text representation of what you've been trying to keep secret and somebody might break in and steal it at that point in B. But if you're going to use entangled photons, again, any kind of attempt at, at detecting or even observing the photon before the entanglement is swapped will, will cause the process to break down. So, you know, it's best to do this with a picture, but you essentially create two photons at the same time. They're both entangled. One goes to a swapping station, one goes to a memory and then another photon is introduced in the swapping station and it becomes entangled and therefore it takes on the information that was in the initial photon and it can then, the, the one that, that came along and got the new information is brighter and it's able to go down the fiber, you know, another distance before it too has to be repeated. This is all happening now. You know, there are some incredibly talented companies that are trying to do this at room temperature and with no vacuum. You know, the, the whole hardware difficulty with quantum anything, quantum computers, quantum repeaters, is that they often have to be cooled down to millikelvins, considering that the heat that remains from the Big Bang is four degrees Kelvin. A millikelvin is really hard to get to, requires a very big distillation refrigerator to do it. So some companies are trying to do this at room temperature, and one in particular that operates out of the Navy Yard in New York, a company called QNEC, has a room temperature memory. So, you know, those are the types of products that get commercialized quicker because they don't have to have, you know, building size refrigerator to cool them and also extreme vacuum requirements that you'll see in most 
quantum computers. Cold temperature, high vacuum, going to take a while to commercialize. So it's it's interesting to see some companies out there. Another one, for example, in the UK is Orca, and they have a uh, quantum memory that has a very short coherence time, but it works perfectly for quantum computer. And that's what they're focused on, while QNECT is focused on the quantum internet. So lots of work going on in QKD, PQC, and and quantum internet. We didn't mention much about PQC, but I can tell you that NIST has been working on this, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, since 2016, and they're getting ready to make an announcement on the type of algorithm that would work for them and, and would become a standard. But what does that mean, post-quantum computing? Does that mean what's next after quantum computing, or... Once no, there's enough quantum computing that it's the standard. Well, it means that there's a powerful enough quantum computer that's going to destroy our encryption methods, which are based on RSA encryption. And, you know, historically, encryption standards have a shelf life of about 20 years. Well, we've also found out that it takes about 20 years to convert from the old standard to the new standard, at least in today's you know, era. Back in the 70s, there wasn't as much data being uh, encrypted, so it could be done quicker. But, you know, we had the initial encryption techniques in the early 70s with the Diffie-Hellman and then RSA in the 90s, which is what we still use today. And then here we are, you know, in 2016, when we realized we're going to have to have yet another standard And that's what the post-quantum cryptographic algorithms are all about. They will be impervious to quantum computers, and that's going to be necessary, or we're not going to be able to transmit data in a secret fashion anymore. Well, what's necessary to make something impervious to quantum computing? Well, you need need an algorithm that requires so much speed of analysis and computing that a quantum computer is not fast enough. You know, a typical RSA, like a a 256 kilobit key today, you know, well, actually it would be more like RSA 2048. That may take thousands of years for our typical computer today to be able to factor that number into its two prime numbers. Quantum computer could do it in 10 minutes. But we don't have a quantum computer like that yet. And we may not have a quantum computer like that for quite a number of years. You know, the biggest quantum computers now are about 100 qubits. And, you know, we're talking about maybe needing 4,000 qubits in order to break RSA 2048. So, you know, a quantum computer is going to be able to do that at some point in the future. And if you're using a post-quantum cryptographic algorithm, it's likely that that algorithm will safeguard your transmission from a quantum computer. That's the the whole goal of having a post-quantum cryptographic algorithm. But what about, um, I think they're called like NP-hard problems, aren't there? Certain problems that quantum computers are just not suited to attack. So why, why continue with the same, you know, factoring to get prime numbers? Why not do something different? Well, it's certainly true that, you know, quantum computers aren't plug and play, meaning that you know, they can solve any problem, but they will be able to solve current problems that we view as unsolvable. So, you know, will there be classical computers once there's quantum computers? I think they'll work in harmony. And 
the projects that lend themselves to classical computing will use classical computers. They'll get faster, but they'll never be able to solve the quantum problems that quantum computers will be able to solve. Yeah, but are there classic problems, right, that, that quantum computers just, there's no point in using them. They just can't solve it any better than classical computers. Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely so. You and know, what are those kind of problems called? Do they have a name? Well, not a generic name. You know, there are different types of problems. Like, for example, you know, being able to create a new pharmaceutical, a quantum computer and only a quantum computer would be able to do that because it's, you know, there are so many permutations that a quantum computer can go through that a classical computer cannot. But, you know, there are other problems that both computers can solve. And in fact, it would be wasteful to use a quantum computer when a classical computer can do it. So, you know, they should be working together even in the future when quantum computers are capable of doing most of the things that they've been designed to do. Gotcha. Makes sense. Are there any particular projects you could talk about that, you know, your company is actively engaged in right now? You know, any particulars? Uh, well, I can talk you know, about you know, certain certain types of, of projects. Like, for example, you know, so we now transmit a lot of our data uh, to the cloud. And being able to secure that data is critically important, more so than ever, because there are harvesting attacks that are going on now where people just record data being transmitted. Like, for example, you can tap an optical fiber quite inexpensively and easily, and you only need about you know a small percentage of the light in order to get all the data. And typically, that data comes along with its encryption key. So I can store all that information cheaply for as long as I need to store it until I have the means to crack the key with a quantum computer. And then I'm going to be able to read all your secret information. So if your secret information has a long shelf life, for example, if it's medical data, and you certainly don't want your medical records to be exposed People could be stealing that information now, unable to read it because it's encrypted, but knowing that eventually they'll be able to decrypt it and, in fact, read it. So, you know, that is, of course, a very important consideration for national security type communications and, you know, anything that really has a long shelf life. I don't know. Is there any way of even preventing harvesting of data? There isn't. But if you harvest data that's been encrypted with a quantum key, not going to be able to get the key and use it to decrypt it. So everybody that's currently using RSA encryption to send their critical data is immediately at risk because it may have already been stolen. And while it's not immediately readable, it's going to be readable. Where you know, a system could sense that it's, you know, being snooped and deliberately provide obfuscated or, you know, data with a poison pill. I don't know, something. I, I mean, it sounds crazy, but can that well, be done? if you're encrypting it with the standard encryption today, like an RSA encryption, you won't be able to tell if if it's optically, be, if it's being stolen optically, meaning I've been able to split 5% or 10% of the light off of a fiber, and I'm detecting everything that's been transmitted. You won't be able to stop that. And that's what harvesting attacks do. And and they don't even have to do it optically. They can do it electrically, but there's a better chance that you could detect it electrically than detecting it optically. 
Would there be any point in having an algorithm that, you know, the data is in packet and the algorithm randomly changes the order of the packets and then transmits it? So even if someone intercepts it and breaks it, it'll look kind of like gobbledygook because it's in some crazy order and then it could be reconstructed at the far end. Well, you know, there's no end to the mathematician's approach to creating algorithms. You know, like, for example, some of the algorithms that have been created, like Shor's algorithm and Grover's algorithm, make it easier for a quantum computer to crack encryption. So, you know, as long as people are working on mathematical approaches and Believe me, they are. I mean, the the post-quantum cryptographic algorithms, by the nature of trying to make them impervious to attacks, they are in the public domain. So, you know, is one of our adversaries going to tell us, hey, guess what? You know, two years ago, we cracked the thing that you're going to rely on. No, they're not going to tell us that. So that, you know, of course, is a worry. But, you know, I trust that the folks at NIST are going to come up with a great standard. And that standard is going to be important. Uh, it's going to be part of the solution, a big part. QKD is going to be a big part of the solution. And eventually we're heading toward having quantum networks and a quantum internet. It may not be in our lifetime, but you know it's probably a decade away to where it's deployed in a large enough fashion to make a difference. There are test beds going up all around the world now for quantum internets, and those are really exceptional researchers working on them, and there's going to be a lot to report over the next years. Yeah, what would a quantum internet look like versus the current internet we have? What are some of the, the standout features, you think? Well, it would have repeaters that are not like the repeaters that we use. Like, for example, in order to go across the ocean in an undersea cable, there's a repeater, I don't know, every 200 kilometers or whatever. Uh, But, you know, so you need a lot of them. It's going to be a different type of repeater. It won't be a repeater that can touch the signal directly. It will have to be one that uses swapping stations for entanglement. And one that presents a photon that's going to be entangled and that's going to work in a way that allows an entanglement swap. And then you've got the opportunity to continue to repeat that signal over and over again. I mean, from the user's perspective, what do you think it'll be like if I zapped you, you know, 50 years into the future and set you down and said, here, Use a quantum internet. What do you think it would be like for you? Well, I don't. I don't think it will be a different experience. I think it will be an ultimately secure experience. So I think we'll start to see a much better way of shielding data, and I think perhaps the ability to hack systems will will drop enormously in the future. Well, John, where can people find out more about uh, your work and the company? Where can they go? Well, you can go to my website, which is safequantum.com, and post frequently on LinkedIn and Twitter. Okay. Well, very good. John, thanks so much for coming and explaining these topics. That, you know, they're complicated. I don't think they're really easy to understand, but uh, you did a great job of explaining them. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Take care now. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.